Hey everyone, we are in season one of the official episode three, and this is what we have all been waiting for, the women themselves in their own words. Tangible Voices is a space where true voices from the past and present can be uncovered, shift our perspective, and resonate with our lives today. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor and made possible by us at One True Promotion. I am Carrie, an educator and performer. This season, we are reading through I Dream a World, which is a collection of interviews and photographs of 75 game-changing African-American women, most of whom we don't learn about in school. Though this book was published in 1989, it amazes me that so many of you out there are already enjoying this journey with me and excited to dive in. That's exactly what we're doing today. A woman with a relatively little known background who devoted her life to teaching hundreds, if not thousands of children, Ruby Middleton Forsyth. A woman pushed to work harder and be smarter, who grew to break barriers and still advocates for the oppressed, Mary Frances Berry. A woman born into relative privilege, who used and is using her leadership to mobilize thousands of black women, Jewel Jackson McCabe. What I happen to be reading are small segments of what could have been at times entire day interviews. Keep that in mind as the topics flow. I call this episode, Give Back, Fight Back. Always say, I'll try. First is Miss Ruby Middleton Forsyth, born June 27, 1905 in Charleston, South Carolina. According to I Dream a World, and modified by me to account for 31 years, Miss Ruby, a teacher for over 60 years, had taught in a one-room schoolhouse on Pauley's Island, South Carolina, for half a century, summoning her students, who ranged from preschoolers to fourth graders, with an old-fashioned brass handbell, a gift from her first class in 1939. Her school, The Holy Cross Faith Memorial School was supported by the Episcopal Church and maintained by the students' parents, many of whom were alumni themselves. In 1987, a national news magazine featured her in a salute to everyday heroes. Miss Ruby passed away on May 29, 1992, at the age of 86. In this interview, Miss Ruby touches on the issue of school integration What she says about the subject may surprise you. In order to better understand the issue behind Brown versus Board and how it actually did negatively affect a lot of African-American students and teachers, I recommend listening to an episode from Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History podcast called Miss Buchanan's Period of Adjustment or doing your own research to find out more. We are laying the foundation for children to build on. I have had a few outstanding students, lawyers, ministers, and every walk of life. 
I had a girl that graduated from the Air Force Academy. They were poor boys and girls. They walked miles and miles to come to school, rain or shine. We tried to build in them dependability, responsibility. They appreciate that today. You got to make them start with the little things that's not in the book to teach them respect. The school teacher today has to be mother, father, counselor, everything. The majority of the children have nobody to sit down with them and teach them the little things that are right from the things that are wrong. Sometimes I have to stop the class, close the book, and sit down and say, let's talk. Because their parents just don't have time. A few children come new, you know, and don't know the rules and regulations. And my children say, Miss Ruby, that boy over there cussed just now. I say, bring that boy in to me. I got a little mixture here that I keep in a bottle and I put it in their mouth and make them hold it there until it starts bubbling. It's nothing but peroxide, Listerine and water, but they think they're going to die. That peroxide starts working with that water and then all these white bubbles start coming down and I won't let them spit it out. They start crying right off as soon as they get me see me get in the bottle. That'll cure all bad language. For discipline, I let the parents know that I am not going to kill their children, but I am not going to put up with their foolishness. And if they don't want that, then don't enroll them in this school. I tell my children, never use the words, I can't. Say, I'll try. I tell them, now God has given us something up in the head. And do you know why he put it there? Because he wants you to use it. If you don't use it, he is going to take it away and give it to the next boy or girl. When they bring their big bags to school, I say, leave your pocketbook at home. I say, when you fill up your head, then the head will help you to fill up your pocketbook. I am not against computers, but I am against putting them in a class or giving them to children when they have not laid a foundation to depend upon themselves. Develop that mind first. I say leadership is good when you don't overstep it. If you can lead and then be able to follow at times. We have quite a few people who are able to lead, but they can't follow. That's why I say it's good for a child to lose as well as win. They must learn in life they are going to be up today and maybe down tomorrow. I do not like forced integration. I may be wrong. I do not like forced anything. Understand, as a youngster, I lived in a white neighborhood with a white neighbor next door. We would go to them, they would go to us. If they had anything, we had it. We lived just like one. We didn't think about no integration. Quaker missionaries set up a school in Charleston for black children, Avery Institute. And then Ashley Hall was set up for the whites. 
The two schools weren't integrated, but the same courses that they studied at Ashley Hall, we got at Avery Institute. Everybody and anybody was not accepted. They had to know something of your background or something about your people before you could be recommended. It was one of the most cultural things that we had in Charleston. We have some good white teachers and they are concerned about black children learning. And we have some good black teachers. On both sides, it's the same way. But we have some teachers who are in the classroom only for the chick. We've had the Ku Klux Klan march all through. If you can see the type of person that's into these marches, you can tell they don't feel good about themselves. They are insecure. They don't feel that they will ever reach the height of some of their own people. And then they feel that some of the blacks will surpass them, suppress them in a way, and that the opportunity some have, they can't get. So all that works on them. When I see my product leave and accomplish something worthwhile, then it gives me the urge to try to do a little bit more for a few more. I see the need of these children today. That's the only reason I am holding on. But I don't know how much longer I'm gonna hold on. Next is the dynamic Mary Frances Berry, born February 17th, 1938. According to I Dream a World, Mary Frances Berry was appointed to the United States Commission on Civil Rights by President Jimmy Carter in 1980. Fired from her position by Ronald Reagan in 1983, she successfully sued for reinstatement in federal district court. She has held faculty and administrative positions at several universities and is a professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania at the time of recording. Miss Berry is alive today, and I recommend you listen to her on YouTube, follow her on Instagram, and check out her books. I am looking forward to reading History Teaches Us to Resist, which was published in 2018. My mother always told me to be overqualified for everything. She said, Always have more qualifications than anybody else you're sitting in the room with. If there are people there who have one degree, you get two. If they got two, you get three. I never had any childhood, really. I read my first fairy tales about three years ago. At one point, my mother had to put my brother and me in an orphanage. It was like a horror story. My mother didn't know it. They didn't feed the children properly. They'd buy rotten food from the supermarket or pick up garbage and cook it. They'd put a whole bunch of black pepper in it so you wouldn't smell that it was rotten. My mother would give us a nickel when she came. There was a man who worked there at the place and used to sell us bones, all the children. When he knew that your mother had left you some money, he'd come and say, if you give me that nickel, I'll give you something good to eat. And then you'd buy his damn bones. I'm not unhappy about my life. I enjoy what I do. 
and it's always interesting to speculate about how it would have been different. It's a sort of upbeat message I give, not, oh, poor me, I didn't get the right food when I was little and didn't get to read any fairy stories. I had a high school teacher who was a wonderful woman. She took me under her wing and said, we're going to get these rough edges off. You are a diamond in the rough. You're smart, but you've led a rather crude, backward kind of life. We're going to polish you up a bit. I was walking down the street with my teacher in Nashville the day Brown versus Board of Education was decided. I saw the new headline in the newspaper and I remember saying, look at this, this is going to be great. Starting next year, the kids will all be going to school together. And she looked at me and said, I'm not sure it's going to happen quite next year. I always had a job. The entire time I went to Howard and the whole time I was in graduate school at Michigan, I worked in hospital labs. Went to school full time and worked on the 3 to 11.30 shift full time until the day I got my PhD. They were very stressful conditions, going to school all day long then staying up half the night to write papers while other people were going out on dates and hanging out. I mean, you need a certain amount of grit to just keep on stepping. I was the first woman of any race to be head of a major research university in this country at the University of Colorado at Boulder, 1976 through 1977. It wouldn't have happened if the political and social changes had not taken place, but I had done as much or more than anybody they could compare me with, male or female, black or white. Black people have to be sensitive in America because of our predicament. Women have to be sensitive in America because of a historical and present predicament. But poverty added on top of that is like a triple burden. It made me a more sensitive and committed person. When it comes to the cause of injustice, I take no prisoners and I don't believe in compromising. After I was chancellor at Colorado, I went to the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, and then I fought hard to get the Department of Education bill passed. And when I left, I was about 40 then, I said, Mama, I'm tired now. I think I've done enough. She said, Oh, what are you going to do next? There's still a lot more to do. When I did the Free South Africa protest, my mother woke up Thanksgiving morning and saw on television that I was in jail. I called her and said, Mom, I'm in jail. And she said, well, it's a good cause. She didn't say, oh, my baby. When you talk about America's neighborhoods, if you didn't live in America and know what country we're talking about, you could be talking about South Africa. Housing segregation is still the major unsolved civil rights problem in America. It's one thing to talk about helping those in the poverty situation to live better. The other thing is, how do you move people out of that generationally and keep them out of it? If Rosa Parks had taken a poll before she sat down in the bus in Montgomery, she'd still be standing. In many ways, what black women have contributed has been stymied. Most often, the women are the ones who concoct or think of things, and the men do them. The old idea of the woman behind the man is still a very alive idea. Race is such an ancient burden that we drag around with us in this country. It's on everybody's mind almost all the time, even if they think it's not.
It's part of the American psyche to have it on your mind and to be unresolved. Finally, the vivacious Jewel Jackson McCabe. Born August 2nd, 1945. According to I Dream a World, at the time of publishing, Jewel Jackson McCabe was the president of the National Coalition of 100 Black Women. She has worked in the public and private sectors and was appointed chairman of New York State's $205 million Jobs Training Partnership Council by Governor Mario Cuomo in 1983. Ms. McCabe is alive today and in 1993 became the first woman in 84 years to be seriously considered for the presidency of the NAACP. As of 2019, she was a professor of public administration at NYU, focusing primarily on women segregation, and leadership in public policy. Behind every significant accomplishment in American society today goes a Black woman, or groups of Black women, unrecognized. My mission is to change that. I grew up in a Black upper-middle-class family, My father was the first black broadcaster in this country. My aunt was the first black to graduate from the Boston Conservatory of Music. We always had the biggest house on the block. Blacks were always taught good manners. The discipline of my upbringing sheltered me. You always went to the bathroom before you left home. You were very controlled in public. You didn't use public facilities because they were not clean. You never knew they were separate. You were never subjected to those indignities. If I am privileged, then I have a responsibility to pay back. Black people are the only segment in American society that is defined by its weakest elements. Every other segment is defined by its highest achievement. We have to turn that around. The majority of people on welfare are not black, brown, or yellow people. They are white people. You factor in racism as a reality, and you keep moving. Part of the problem of upward mobility is that even when we exhibit great strengths and give good advice, we're never perceived as the person who should get the job. It's that old boring image of always training the person that's going to be your supervisor. When I worked for Governor Hugh Carey, I was in the women's division and all the women around me were white. I'd come home frustrated because I couldn't get them to make a decision. All they did was find reasons not to make decisions. I realized that white women had been so stripped of their capabilities and their self-esteem that they were not needed to be decision makers. The difference is night and day. I am driven by a reality that I am, by hook or crook, going to make a decision. Childcare for white women is last on their agenda because it basically supplements what is first on the agenda, equal pay for equal work. 
Childcare, however, happens to be on the top of our agenda because we know we've got to work. We are sensitive to the full range of the haves and have-nots. White women tend to see through the eyes of whatever class they come from. Teaching dance to emotionally disturbed children was probably one of my most satisfying and wrenching experiences. Dealing with little ones from broken homes that had tried to commit suicide. I mean, how does a four-year-old try to commit suicide? And why? The coalition was started in 1970 by a group of 24 women who were quite profound and prophetic about the need to develop a contemporary forum for Black women leaders. We used the volunteer core of the coalition to serve as role models, to teach young people how to leverage resources and how to make it. The women decided to call themselves the Coalition of 100 Black Women, hoping that they would be able to find 100. When I became president in 1977, we had 127. When I launched the national movement in 1981, we were 890 women in New York, and they were crying for it outside. Now we're over 6,062 cities. Part of my passion with Black women is that those who become achievers tend not to be involved in movements. White males tend to bond gloriously when they become accomplished. Not us. We tend to go under the rug, disappear, hide. We've got to have a legacy of leadership. We've got to bring along with us a generation of Black women who are going to confront 21st century realities. There is a confinement and a discipline and a preparation for leadership that you develop through being alone, which women are fearful of. I do business with many corporate and political leaders. I don't think they think I can ever have the pains that other women have. You have to exude that strength in order to be respected. It's happened several times. When I finish speaking, someone from the audience will say, Jewel McCabe, we've heard so much about you, but we thought you were a large, old black woman. And I remind them that I have the heart and soul of a large, old black woman. enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe. If you could rate my podcast five stars, that would be incredibly helpful to get the message behind this podcast to even more people. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Be sure to visit Tangible Voices Podcast on Instagram for even more content and to be in the know about what's coming up. Thank you for listening and please remember that your voice has a power all its own. Bye-bye.